would you bow your hearts with me and we'll pray before we start. Heavenly Father, we are so blessed and so thankful that we have this opportunity to gather around your word and to celebrate what we just sang. We celebrate the power of the cross. We celebrate Jesus Christ who has come and stood in our place and who has given us life and who has given us all that we need even in this life. We praise you and we thank you for that. And we ask now that as we go to your word, we pray that your spirit would work mightily in our hearts. You know every person here. You know where they are and the struggles that they're facing. You know they're standing before you. And I pray, Lord, that you would encourage every soul here through your word. I pray that you would help us to refocus on the cross and what it is that you have done for each one of us. I pray for those who are here who perhaps have never truly believed the gospel. They heard it. They've been around it, or maybe not even heard it, Lord. And so I ask, Lord, that you would speak to every heart here, that no one would walk away from here unmoved by your word. We ask that you would redeem. We ask that you would save. We ask that you would put the power of the cross on display through the preaching of your word. And we pray all this for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Well, first, I am grateful to Pastor Greg for extending this invitation to me and giving me an opportunity to be here. As he mentioned, I served along with Tony Arns. You know him. And we serve in Folsom, and we are grateful for your prayers and your support as we're seeking to establish a gospel-focused and Christ-exalting and scripture-saturated church in Folsom. So, Lord willing, by our combined efforts, the Lord will accomplish something in that city. So we thank you for your support. Now I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. In few weeks, we're going to be celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it is appropriate for us in these coming days as we approach the celebration to look at the events that have led to that glorious day. In fact, we can say that we never need an excuse to look at the death of Christ, do we? We don't because the death of Christ and his work on the cross is the center of what we believe. It is the center of the gospel because we are saved, we are redeemed, and we are here and we're worshiping Christ because of what he has accomplished on the cross. The gospel writers, they dedicate significant portions of their account to the final days of Jesus' life here on earth. You read through Mark, you read through the gospel of Matthew, and about a quarter of their gospels are dedicated to the final week of Jesus' life. You read through the Gospel of Luke, and about a quarter, chapters 19 through 24, a huge chunk of that large Gospel is dedicated to that final week. And if you recently read John, almost half of that Gospel, beginning in chapter 12, all the way through the end, it is all about those final days that Jesus spent here on earth. Now, each gospel writer is writing from his own perspective, and he's writing for his own purpose. And so their accounts are not identical, and yet the Spirit of God compelled the gospel writers to include some of the events in every single account. And one of those accounts we will look at today. The Spirit of God compelled Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to include this insignificant and perhaps even incidental account in their writings. This morning, I want us to look at the work of Christ from the perspective of one man who was impacted on that day as no one else. No, I don't know if he got saved. I don't even know how he responded to what happened to him on that Black Friday. 
But I can tell you that like no other person in the story of the death of Christ, he was impacted. And his story is one of the greatest illustrations of the gospel, one of the greatest illustrations of what we celebrate here. Of course, I'm talking about Barabbas. That's why the title of today's sermon is Barabbas or Jesus. Now, if you've read the accounts, and I'm sure you have, you know that Barabbas does not play a significant part in the narrative of crucifixion. In fact, he's almost an afterthought. If you remove the story of Barabbas from account, you still have the full story. You still have a full picture. The story is included here because Pilate was looking for a cop-out. He was grasping at straws to find one way or another to somehow release Jesus and not deal with him. No, he didn't want to do this because he was so concerned with justice. He wanted to do that because he was concerned with himself and he was concerned with his own position. Now, as we look at our text here in Matthew chapter 27, verses 15 through 26, I want to unpack it under three headings. First, I want us to look at the plan. We'll examine the plan that Pilate came up with to set Jesus free. And in his plan, he presents the crowd with two men, Barabbas and Jesus. Second, we're going to look at the pick. The crowd makes the decision, and they choose one of them. And then finally, and this is where I want us to spend a little bit of time, and I want us to look at the picture. What is this a picture of? Why is it even here? Why include this story? And why does every gospel writer include this in his writings? Join me as I read Matthew 27, beginning in verse 15. It says, Now the, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy, they had handed him over. While, they were, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, Which one of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Crucify him. He said, Why? Why evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water. And wash his hands in front of the crowds, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, His blood shall be on us and on our children. And he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Let's begin with the plan now, before we dive into our text, I want to briefly set the context of the story. Where are we in this saga of crucifixion? This is early Friday morning. 
Jesus has been arrested last night in the garden. About 600 soldiers, according to John 18, 3, came and arrested him. And before Jesus was crucified, we know that he went through at least six trials. There were three trials before the religious leaders, and then there were three trials before the civilian authorities. The first trial was before Annas. According to John 18:12, it says, So the Roman cohort and the commanders and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first. Now, Annas is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who is the high priest at that time. Now, Annas is not the high priest, but he is the power broker in Israel. So the first place the Roman uh, soldiers lead him is to Annas' house. Now, we know that Annas questions him. And then he goes to the second place, and the second trial is before Caiaphas. According to John 18, 24, so Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. After Annas questioned him, he leads him to Caiaphas, who is the high priest at this time. And according to Matthew 26, 57, we're told that there are elders, there are priests, and there are scribes who are gathered together at Caiaphas's house. This was the trial, you remember, where they were trying to find false witnesses who would bring accusations against Jesus so that they can somehow condemn him to death. No matter what charge they leveled against Christ, nothing would stick. Why? Because he was innocent. Now remember, all this takes place in the middle of the night. I mean, this violated every statute against injustice. You cannot just grab a guy in the middle of the night, bring them to your house, bring a couple of your friends, bring few false witnesses, and condemn the guy to death. And that is exactly what is going on here. This would be illegal in every society. And that is what is taking place here. They bring false accusations against Christ. They condemn him to death. And then we're told that they beat him and they mock him. Now, that goes on until morning, and in the morning, he faces his third trial. And his third trial is before the Sanhedrin. According to Matthew 27, 1, it says, Now when the morning came, the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. It's about 6 o'clock in the morning. The religious leaders, the Supreme Court of Israel, comes together to officially condemn Jesus to death. However, because... Jews are under Roman control. They cannot put anyone to death. And that's why they need civilian authorities to do it for them. And that's why after you have these three religious trials, where they already come with the verdict that we're going to kill him, they come before the Pilate's civilian authorities. And the fourth trial that we read of is before the Pilate, the first one before Pilate, because there's two. According to Luke 23, one says, Then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate. So after they officially condemned him in Sanhedrin, so these religious leaders of Israel, they go to Pilate and they bring false accusations against him. They're saying Jesus is insurrectionist and he is a threat to Rome. Now notice in all the trials before that, these were not the charges against Jesus. But Pilate is not going to put him to death because of some dispute they have about the law. No, so they're bringing charges, they're bringing false accusations that Jesus is a threat to Rome. According to Luke 23, 2 says, They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. That's the problem. They love money. Forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. He's threat to you. Romans do not tolerate other kings in their territory. He is a threat to you. And so Pilate comes in, begins to interrogate him, 
And he comes out and he says, I find no guilt in this man. This man is innocent. Now, Pilate wants to get rid of Jesus. He doesn't want to deal with the situation because it is a problem for him. It's nuisance for him. And so once he finds out that Jesus is actually from jurisdiction of Herod, he says, listen, that's great. I'm going to get rid of him. Let Herod deal with him. And so he sends him to Herod. And this is where you have your fifth trial before Herod. Luke 23, 7. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at that time. You remember at this trial, Jesus did not say a word. Because Herod was not interested in justice. Herod was interested in satisfying his own curiosity. And after Jesus did not say a word to him, we read that Herod mocked him and beat him, and he sends him back to Pilate. And he's back to Pilate, and this is the sixth trial, and this is where we are in our text here. Now, we said that when he was there the first time, Pilate already concluded that Jesus was innocent. Because in Luke 23, 4, he says, Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Now, you would think that the case would be closed. He already interrogated him. He already had all the evidence that he needed. He says, I find no guilt in this man. But Pilate finds himself in a difficult situation, and he is on thin ice both with the Jews and with his superiors. He is because Pilate hates the Jews, and Jews hate Pilate. That's the dynamic that we have here. Because of constant rebellion in the region, Pilate was on thin ice with his authorities in Rome. And Jews knew that. And Pilate knew that. And because of that, he's caught between the rock and the hard place, not knowing what he should do with Jesus. As far as he's concerned, he has no good option. I mean, the first option that he has is to side with the Jews. But if he's going to side with the Jews, he's going to condemn an innocent man. He already knows that. That's not good. And so the way Scripture presents Pilate is if he's trying to release Jesus because he knows he's innocent. So that's not a good option. On the other hand, if he condemns Jesus then he just condemned an innocent man. But if he releases Jesus, he's got a problem with the Jews. He's got a problem with the Jews who's going to cause a riot. And if there is another riot in the city, then his governorship is all but over. He doesn't want to lose his power. He doesn't want to have another problem. So he's caught between a rock and a hard place. And that's why he comes up with this plan. Look at verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release to the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. You know, Pilate sees this as a way out. Romans, they prized money and they prized peace. Whenever they would conquer a territory, they would set up their government. They would put their officials there. They would put their soldiers there. And their job was to maintain peace. And they would do it at all costs. And so at times, they would appease those people over whom they rule. And they would give things to them so that they would just be quiet and that there would be peace and stability in the region. And this custom was one of those ways. The Passover is the most important day for the Jews. And Pilate sees this as an opportunity. His first attempt to just simply release Jesus didn't work because the Jews says, no, we need to crucify him, we need to kill him. And so his first attempt didn't work. And so he comes up with this, comes up with this plan. What is the plan? Here's the plan. I'm going to take one of the most heinous criminals I have and I'm going to present a choice to the people. You want this guy or you want Jesus? Now, if the crowd sides with Jesus, 
then I'm just going to do what the crowd wants, and it's good with me. And I think the crowd will side with Jesus. Because just about a week ago, the same crowd, these same people, they just sang Hosanna to the King of David. They just celebrated Christ. So if I'm going to take one of the most heinous criminals and I'm going to put him against Christ and say, hey, which one do you want? Of course they're going to choose Jesus. Now, in his mind, this is a brilliant plan. I get what I want. The people get what they want. And at the same time, I get to snub the religious leaders. Now, people could have asked for any one of the prisoners, right? Isn't that what the text says? And yet Pilate narrows their choice, and he says, you're going to choose either Jesus or you're going to choose Barabbas. Now, who is Barabbas? Now, Matthew tells us that he was a notorious prisoner. Pilate did not have to explain to people who he was. Everyone knew who he was. Mark tells us in Mark 15, 7, that he was insurrectionist and a murderer. Probably he was part of an insurrection against Rome, where he murdered someone and he was captured by the Romans. John adds to us that he was a robber, according to John 18.40. Now you can't help but remember that when Jesus was crucified, there were three crosses, right? Jesus was in the middle, and there were two guys who were robbers. The cross in the middle was for Barabbas. That's who was supposed to be crucified there. And so everybody knows who this guy is. He is a notorious prisoner, his insurrectionist, his murderer, and he's a robber. Now imagine yourself in the crowd on that day. Here stands Jesus. I mean, practically by all account, he has transformed the region in the last three and a half years. Did you not? He fed the hungry. He healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. He restored the lame. He raised the dead. He delivered the demon-possessed. He performed miracles. He calmed the sea. He forgave sins. He did good and only good. And then you have Barabbas. A murderer. A thug. A criminal. Robber and a murderer. Which one do you want? I mean, these are your options. You're standing there in the crowd, and you're looking at these two choices. Which one do you want? Now, you might think that the Jews liked people like Barabbas. Now, some did, but majority did not because people like Barabbas, they made their life very difficult because Rome came down hard on everyone who rebelled against them. And because he was rebel, because he was associated with the Jews, Pilate hated the Jews because of people like Barabbas. And so their life was miserable. And it's not like these people like Barabbas and they're like, oh, great, give us Barabbas. No, they hate one another. And so these were their options. He's no friend of the Jews, and Pilate knew that. And that is, a pre that is precisely why he chose this guy, because Jews did not like him. Now, Pilate also knows why they betrayed Jesus. He also knows exactly why Jesus is before him. Look at verse 18. He knew that because of envy, they had handed him over. Why? Because of envy. It was not because he was threat to Rome. It was not because of a religious dispute that they had. No, it was because of envy. You see, Jesus had what the religious leaders did not have. We read through the Gospels that he spoke with authority and people listened to him. He had credibility. Large crowds followed him. He loved people. As a good shepherd, he cared for their souls, unlike their religious leaders. And on top of all that, Jesus publicly rebuked them in front of everyone. He did that. 
Jesus had credibility, which the religious leaders did not have, but they wanted. And so they were envious of Jesus. And Pilate knows exactly why they're betraying him. Probably knows of the several attempts already that they tried to kill Jesus. And isn't it amazing that you have this pagan, complete pagan, and he can read the situation better than people who knew Bible by heart. He knows exactly what is going on here. So Pilate stands before the crowd and he says, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus? Who's called Christ. And just to note here, some of the manuscripts have Barabbas. Do you want Jesus Barabbas? Or do you want Jesus who is called the Christ? Now it is possible that his name was Jesus. Barabbas. That is why you would have this Jesus who is called the Christ. It's possible, if not likely, that that was the case. You want this Jesus or you want this Jesus? Now, Barabbas is an interesting name. You run into people that have names that start with Bar in the New Testament. For example, you have Bar-Jonah. Simon Bar-Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah. In Acts chapter 13, 6, we read of a prophet who is called Bar-Jesus. Son of Jesus. In Matthew 10.46, there's a blind man, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. And here you have Barabbas, Bar's son, Abba's father, a son of a father. Now the irony here, here is a son of a father, and here is the son of the father. Which one do you want? Now notice that Pilate identifies Jesus as the Christ. Jesus, who is called the Christ. No, Pilate does not believe that Jesus is the Christ. He does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But he knows that the Jews are awaiting the Messiah. He knows that they're waiting for the one who's going to come and deliver them. And so perhaps mocking them. Do you want Jesus, who is your Messiah, who is called Christ? He gives this choice. And then here, notice that as he gives this choice, Matthew includes this interesting note in verse 19. His wife sends him a message and she says to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. Notice how she identifies Jesus. It is like as if you need more evidence that Jesus is innocent. No, have nothing to do with this righteous man. Now we don't know exactly what happened to her. We don't know exactly what dream she had. But she sends and she gives Pilate more evidence. No doubt, Pilate talked to his wife about the events that has happened in Jerusalem in the last week. I mean, everybody knew about it. When Jesus walked into the city, the whole city was in uproar. And definitely Roman authorities knew about it. Jesus walked in, he cleansed the temple. You think they knew about that? Oh, sure they did. So they talked about him. They know who he is. And whether it was a dream, and apparently here the Lord is warning Pilate through his wife. We don't know who she is. She's a believer in Jesus. She's not a believer. All we know is that Pilate gets another warning that you are about to condemn an innocent man. He is righteous. Whatever her interpretation of the events are, it's like, don't do anything to this man. He is righteous. Now, this was the plan. The plan was to pit these two guys against one another, hoping that the crowd would choose Jesus. And he would be off Jesus, uh, Pilate's hand. That's the plan. So what do people choose? Let's look secondly at the pick. At the pick, so while Pilate is processing the information his wife has given to him, the religious leaders are busy. 
They're busy because verse 20 says the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. So while he's dealing with his message, they're about the crowd and said, no, 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 you ought to ask for Barabbas. Now, I know you hate Barabbas. I know he's not good, but you ask for Barabbas. And they persuade the crowd. Now, this is not going according to the plan. That's not what he expected. That's not what he wanted. And so when he comes to the crowd and he says, which one do you want? They say, we want Barabbas. Now, again, Pilate understands that this is not justice. This is just wrong. Now, I can understand why leaders are betraying Jesus, because they hate him, because they're envious of him. But think about the crowd. What did he ever do to the crowd? What did he ever do to those people besides healing them, besides feeding them, besides providing for them? What did he ever do to them? And so Pilate is lost. Pilate's like, no, that's not how this is supposed to work. That's not how this is supposed to go. You're supposed to choose Jesus because Jesus is good. Barabbas is bad. But they know. They say, no. No, give us Barabbas. Notice Pilate cannot believe this. And so he again asks in verse 21, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. I mean, are you out of your mind? You want this thug? You want to betray Jesus? They say, no. Free Barabbas. Free Barabbas. That was their chant. And not only does Pilate ask him this first question, which one do you want? But notice he asks him the second question, verse 22. Then what shall I do with Jesus, who's called Christ? Now this question is even more important than the first one. The first they make their choice, which one do you want? And they say, we want Barabbas. What shall I do with Jesus? Crucify him. Now think about this. Pilate did not have to condemn Jesus, even if he released Barabbas, right? So Barabbas could not have been released unless Jesus stands in his place, right? Because you are presented with this choice. But then he was still able to release one of the prisoners for them, and he could have just said, hey, take this guy. And then he would say, no, okay, you want this guy? Go ahead, take him. But Jesus is just. Jesus is righteous. Jesus is innocent. And therefore, Jesus can also go. He could have done that. Now, that would have cost him everything. And so here is his choice. It is his choice. Either you're going to stand with justice right now, and you're going to declare Jesus innocent as you did in the first trial, and you're going to suffer whatever may come. Or you're going to say, okay, you want Jesus to be crucified? You could have him. And you're going to have Jesus' blood on your hand. And so Pilate can't believe again. And he says, what evil has he done? Notice again, he's prodding in this crowd. He's like, guys, come on, come to your senses. What are you doing? What evil has he done to you? And they have no answer. He has done no evil to them. They're like this mob that has been stirred by their leaders. And all they're saying and all they're crying is, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And at this point, the plan that Pilate had crumbles. It crumbles. He wanted to pit the crowd against the leaders. But now both the crowd and the leaders are pit against him. And he realizes that this thing is coming out of hands. He has two options. Like I said, he's either going to stand with justice and release Jesus. Or he's going to stand with the crowd and condemn an innocent man. And based on our text, we, hear, we see here that he chooses the latter. 
He chooses the latter, but not without pacifying his guilty conscience. Because notice he had so much evidence that Jesus was innocent. More than that, Jesus was righteous. Jesus was not worthy of death. And so what Pilate is concerned here is not with justice, is not with righteousness. What he is concerned with is his own position. It is his own place of authority. He realizes that if he does not condemn Jesus, his days are over as a governor. And he loves his power and he loves his position more than he loves justice. Notice how he pacifies his guilty conscience. Matthew 27, 24 says, When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, I mean, all his plans failed. He tried to send Jesus to Herod. That didn't work. He tried to, you know, trade him for Barabbas. That didn't work. And now he sees that nothing that he does accomplishes anything. But rather that a riot was starting. That's what he was afraid of. That's what he was afraid of because if the riot starts and the word of another riot in Jerusalem gets to Rome, he's got problems. And he sees that the riots are starting. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. It's somewhat ironic that even Pilate here, he uses a Jewish ritual to demonstrate his innocence. If you read in the law, Deuteronomy 21, Beginning in verse 1, we read this. If a slain person is found lying in an open country, in the land which the Lord your God gives you to possess, and it is not known who has struck him, then your elders and your judges shall go out and measure the distance to the cities which are around the slain one. It shall be that the city which is nearest to the slain man, that is the elders of that city, shall take a heifer of the herd, which has not been worked and which has not been pulled in a yoke, and the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water, which has not been plowed or sown, and they shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priest, the sons of Levi, shall come near, for the Lord your God has chosen them to serve him and to bless in the name of the Lord, and every dispute and every assault shall be settled by them. All the elders of that city which is nearest to the slain man, shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. And they shall answer and say, Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it. Forgive your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, O Lord, and do not place the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel. And the blood guiltiness shall be forgiven them. You see, the problem here is that Pilate is not innocent. The reason why this ceremony worked for those people, because they were not guilty. They were not aware of who condemned. They were not aware of who killed that man. And here he is, Pilate is condemning Jesus to death. The reason why he's going to go to the cross is because Pilate okayed it, because Pilate signed his verdict. And here he is taking this ritual here and he washes his hand as if he can somehow wash off blood off of his hands. And he can't. You see, declaring yourself innocent does not make you innocent. Right? Just because you say you are not guilty, when you are guilty, that will not make you guiltless. No, Pilate is guilty, and no amount of hand washing can satisfy his conscience, his guilty conscience. Now by this time, the crowd is worked up. And notice what they say. His blood shall be on us and on our children. 
I mean, what a damning statement. That you're saying, okay, you know, you wash your hands, great, you're not guilty. We're guilty. Notice they're, they're saying, his blood shall be on us and on our children. And that's why about 50 days later, when Peter stood there, possibly in front of these same people, the same crowd, he's able to say to them in Acts 2.22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourself know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by hands of godless men and put him to death. Notice he assigns the guilt for the crucifixion of Christ to these same people. He says, you nailed him. You used Romans, yes, by hands of a godless man. But you nailed him to the cross. Why? Because you have brought him over. You have delivered him over because of envy. And Pilate signed off on that. Notice all of this that is happening here is according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Could this have happened any other way? Nope. It was predetermined plan. In eternity past, it was already determined that Jesus Christ would walk this path, that Jesus Christ would go through all this. It was predetermined and foreknowledge of God. And foreknowledge, it's not like God just looked through the corridors of history. He's like, wow, I see Jesus is dying. Okay, it makes sense. No, he determined it. He said, this is how it's going to happen. And all of this was happening according to his sovereign will. And yet notice the responsibility. You nailed him to the cross. He does not say, well, God determined this. So I'm sorry, guys. I'm really sorry that you have to part. No. You're guilty because you made the decision. You gave them over. You handed him over to godless men. You made a pick. You made a decision. You've handed Christ over, and therefore, you're guilty. You made a choice. You chose Barabbas. You chose a thug. You chose a murderer. And you condemned innocent blood. What was the result? Verse 26. Then Pilate released Barabbas for them. But having Jesus purged, he handed him over to be crucified. Now we've seen the plan. We've seen their pig. Let's finally look at the picture. Now I want us to ponder for a moment the question, why is this here? What is the point of this? Why does every gospel writer allude to Barabbas? I mean, is he so important to the narrative? No. It was just an afterthought. It was just a way the pilot tried to get himself off the hook. That's why he's there. He's not that important. And yet every gospel writer includes that. Now you read this account, and there are perhaps several characters that you can relate to. First, think about Pilate. I mean, you can see his struggle in this text. I mean, history tells us that he was a wicked man. I mean, we have accounts where he has murdered Jews and he mixed their blood with their sacrifices. But here in this account, he is trying to, at least trying to, in front of the Jewish leaders and in front of the people to somehow release Jesus. To somehow say, no, 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 he is innocent man. He declares him innocent so many times. He's willing to do everything as long as it doesn't cost him his job. I mean, if he loved justice so much, he could have, could have said, no, there is no way, there is no how I'm going to condemn this man. And he could have stood his ground, but he didn't because he loved his position more than he loved justice. In some way, you read this and you can identify, identify with him. And you can, you, can say, you can say with him, like looking at this crowd, it's like, dude, what's wrong with you people? What is wrong with you? I mean, can't you see what you're doing? 
Can't you see that this man is innocent? Can't you see that this man is righteous? Just like he does in this text. Or maybe consider the crowd. If you were in that crowd on that day, I mean, most of us think like, I mean, we wouldn't do that. But, but for the grace of God, every single one of us would stand there and cry out with them, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. If it was not for the grace of God. Remember Peter? Peter who thought that he's better than traitor. I will never deny you. And then three times in front of a slave girl. Three times. Listen, we would be just like all these people, but not for the grace of God in that crowd. But I want us to go back to Barabbas for a moment. Because Barabbas here, he stands as this amazing picture of what is actually happening here. The truth is that I am Barabbas. The truth is that you are Barabbas. The truth is that all of us here are Barabbas. No, no, we're not just participants. We're not just sitting there in the crowd and deciding between two men. No, we are Barabbas. Listen, there is no question of our guilt. We are guilty criminals before God, are we not? Because every single one of us, just like Barabbas, we have violated God's law. We have spurned His love. We have rejected His grace, just like Barabbas. And you know what? The cross in the middle is reserved for you, and it is reserved for me. Because we are guilty, just like Barabbas. And then comes Jesus. And then comes Jesus. And Jesus stands in the place of Barabbas and he takes the place that was prepared for Barabbas. He willingly takes his place and he sacrifices himself. He takes upon himself the punishment that was due to Barabbas. He was crucified in his place. I mean, think about it. If you were Barabbas, a night before, if you had any sleep, you probably didn't, but a night before, you were slated for crucifixion. You were slated for, you were on death row. And you are on death row knowing that tomorrow morning you're going to be executed. And then in the early hours of the morning, you get to go free. You get to go free. It's got free. Because you, you didn't do anything. Someone else stands in your place. I mean, isn't that what the gospel is all about? Isn't that what the truth that we celebrate around this time all about? Is that there was one who stood in our place. One preacher put it this way, the Heavenly Father treated Jesus like Barabbas so that he can treat Barabbas like Jesus. You see, the Heavenly Father treated Jesus like you so that he can treat you like Jesus. Heavenly Father treated me like he treated Jesus because he treated Jesus like he's supposed to treat me. Because you and I were supposed to be on that middle cross. You know, Spurgeon said it best when he said, Jesus must die, or we must die, or justice must die. I mean, those are the only options. And because God is holy, justice cannot die. So either Jesus will die, or you will die. Those are the only options. Either Barabbas would be crucified, or someone would be crucified in his place. And here stood Jesus. I mean, no one on that day experienced substitution like Barabbas did. I mean, the thief on the cross, he understood that Jesus was a holy man. And he said, remember me, and he got saved. But talk about substitutional atonement, a picture of that. 
No one has experienced that except Barabbas. Barabbas, like I said, in the morning slated for crucifixion, and that afternoon, he's walking about scot-free. And by the way, the text does not tell us anything about Barabbas. We don't even know how he responded. I mean, did he thank Jesus? Did he just walk away? Did he go back to his old ways? What? We don't know. How did he respond? Don't know. But notice that the picture is here. The gospel illustrated here that a man died in his place so that he could go free. Now here's a question for you today. As you reflect on this, let me ask you, how do you respond to the gospel? I mean, if you're a believer today, do you get used to this story? I mean, if you were on death row, literally, and you were released, would you ever forget that day? Would you ever forget that story? I mean, the sad truth is that we, we do forget. It's either because we don't necessarily see ourselves as Barabbas, deserving of that cross. We don't necessarily see ourselves as if we were on death row when in fact we were. And yet we have been taken off of that row, and someone else stood in our place, and someone gave his life, namely Christ. And that's why you come back here every Sunday in the middle of the week, and that's why you read your Bible so that you remind yourself of the story again and again and again. Jesus stood in my place. Jesus was condemned, so I would not be. Praise God for that. Amen? See, that's the story. That's why we remind ourselves. That's what we're celebrating here, that we have a substitute. And guess what? Because Jesus took the wrath of God upon himself. When he was done, he said, it is finished. Listen, if you're in Christ, all of your sins have been forgiven. Your past, your present, your future, you're absolutely righteous. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to your account. And God looks at you as if you lived 33 years of perfect obedience to the Father. Is that not a good news? That is a good news because he's a substitute for you. He took your sin and then he gave you his righteousness. And that's why you're clothed in Christ if you are in Christ. That's the good story. That's what we're celebrating. And so we remind ourselves of that again and again and again because that is the good news. Maybe someone here has never truly believed that story. I want you to ask yourself the question that Pilate asks in verse 22. Then what shall I do with Jesus, who's called Christ? What should I do with Jesus, who's called Christ? You see, the answer to this question will determine your destiny. What are you going to do with Jesus? Are you going to believe in him? Are you going to repent of your sins? Are you going to trust him as your substitute and be saved? Or are you going to reject him? Are you going to walk away? Or maybe even mock him like this crowd? What are you going to do with Jesus? I mean, that is the most important question you can ever answer. You see, no matter, I mean, you can have one day or you can have another 100 years for you. But no matter what, when your life ends, that is the only question that is going to ring in eternity. What did you do with Jesus? What did you do with him? Did you trust him? Did you obey him? Or did you walk away? Indifferent. Maybe even mocking him. You see, Jesus stood in your place. He was sacrificed as a substitute. And you know what? There is only one offering that God accepts. And that is the offering of his own son. No amount of good works, no amount of anything that you do will ever suffice. You cannot earn your way with God. You cannot earn life. Someone else needs to be sacrificed and not someone else in Jesus Christ. 
So I urge you, if you have not trusted this message, acknowledge your sin. Believe in the gospel, this good news, that Jesus was your substitute, and come to Christ. And if you come to Christ, there is a guarantee, there is a promise that I will set you free, and I will give you eternity with me. Listen, if you have not believed, and if you have not trusted in Christ, don't leave this place without talking to somebody. Pray with me. Our Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you stood in our place. We thank you that wrath that was due to us because of our sin, you have absorbed. And you have absorbed it fully when you have declared that it is finished. We thank you that you not only died, but you rose again on the third day, declaring that victory to everyone that you have accomplished what you have set out to do, namely to redeem sinners. We praise you for that. And we pray for us here that we would never forget this, that we will always remember this and we will always praise you and live in light of that story. Pray for the hearts here who are still unconverted. May you be gracious. May you open their eyes so that they would see Christ, they would see their own sin, they would fall and repent and be saved. For your glory we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.